Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. This is the second of two episodes in my doubleheader kickoff to season two, which is starting in the wake of the Capitol riot, the second impeachment of outgoing U.S. President Donald Trump, and ongoing tensions in the United States and elsewhere. So given the context, I was really looking forward to this really timely episode and conversation with my good friend and someone I just greatly admire and respect, Nathan Stock. Nathan right now is a conflict resolution program consultant for the Carter Center. And the Carter Center, for anyone who's not familiar, is former President Jimmy Carter's organization. It's a nonprofit typically known for its work on peace building and democracy, usually in international contexts and in countries that are dealing with conflict or division. But in the last year, the Carter Center started focusing on the United States and preventing violence in the run-up to the November election and the aftermath. So Nathan's been working on that project and trying to apply some of the lessons, observations he's learned from his own work overseas on conflict prevention to the United States context. And when I mention Nathan's overseas work, it's pretty extensive. He ran the Carter Center's Israel-Palestine field office for several years, where he managed uh, projects targeting the Fatah and Hamas conflict. He worked on uh, trying to advance solutions to the Syrian civil war. He's worked in Afghanistan. He just has a wealth of experience in different contexts, but all contexts where there are just really deep societal divisions and political divisions. I've known Nathan for a while. We met as grad students back in Washington, D.C., both of us studying conflict resolution and violence prevention, and we overlap for multiple years in Jerusalem. And we both share a common concern over the increasing divisions that we've witnessed in American society, like many people do. Not just increasing political polarization in the traditional sense with parties getting further apart on issues, but more of an internalization of political identity that's relating to social and cultural othering, kind of drawing of sharp moral lines between individuals and groups, deepening feelings of grievance and victimhood. And so all these elements, and especially that othering and sometimes even dehumanizing aspect, are things that we're seeing in the U.S., and it's resonated with both Nathan and I with things we've witnessed in other divided societies where we've worked. Now, each conflict is obviously different, and neither of us here are trying to equate the U.S. right now with active civil wars or protracted conflicts in other places necessarily. But the dynamics that we're witnessing are indeed troubling, and it's why both of us right now are trying to look back at what we've learned working on conflicts overseas and see what can apply to the U.S. now, both in terms of recognizing threats, but also trying to draw on best practices that actually help in preventing violence and conflict. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you will too. So now here is my conversation with Nathan Stock. Nathan Stock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here. Um, So Nathan, you have been working with the Carter Center on their U.S. election project this year to help community leaders support peaceful elections, prevent political violence. We are going to get into all of that. But first, I just wanted to take a step back because we've known each other for a while, worked together in different contexts. And so walk us through how you 
first started working in places like Israel-Palestine, Afghanistan, and then came to be working on preventing conflicts in the United States. Sure. So uh, ever since I was in college, if not before, I was interested in working abroad. And uh, I, I started out in international development. Uh, I, uh, my first gig out of college was as an English teacher abroad. Um, but by the time I was in my early 30s, wrapping up a couple years in Afghanistan, working on a grant from USAID, I was really interested to see if I could switch to more policy-focused work, and ideally work that would help me engage at a higher level with policymakers on questions of armed conflict abroad. Um, it just so happened at that time that the Carter Center, the nonprofit founded by uh, former President and Mrs. Carter out of Atlanta, uh, at that time, they were expanding their Middle East conflict team. So I was hired as an assistant director in their what's called their conflict resolution program uh, with a, a writ to work on uh, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Palestine. Um, and so I went on to spend nine years with the Carter Center, um, mostly focused on, on those conflicts. Uh, the last th three and a half years, I was running uh, their Israel-Palestine office out of Jerusalem. Uh, and in the process, I you know, uh, had, had a, a great opportunity to work with some extraordinary professionals and learn a lot. And you know, among other things, I developed some real expertise in, in Palestinian politics and spent many years, uh, many, pardon me, many hours and many years uh, negotiating with, with Hamas and other um, armed groups, you know, terrorist groups, et cetera. Um, but somewhere in there, uh, it was hard to ignore uh, some of the, the trends uh, back at home in the U.S. that seemed increasingly reminiscent of, of deeply divided societies where, where I had worked in the Middle East and other parts of the world. And so I began to think about uh, how I might apply some of the work I'd done abroad to these challenges at home. Yeah, and when you say the U.S. as a divided society, I mean, some of the places that you've mentioned, Israel-Palestine, Afghanistan, I think for some people would be a real stretch to say that the divisions in the U.S. are similar to areas we associate with protracted conflict, with violent war. Can you say a bit more about why, like what what things you were starting to see or what dynamics you were starting to observe that maybe had you a bit worried or that I guess maybe had the Carter Center paying attention in a different kind of way? Sure. These are issues that I've been concerned about for years. I mean, predating the 2016 election. Uh, not to suggest that in 2015, you know, the U.S. had internal conflicts akin to those in Afghanistan, but even at that point, there were some underlying trends that were, were really concerning. Um, among others, um, you know, what something that conflict nerds call elite factionalization, which is just the idea that political elites themselves were increasingly divided. Throughout the Obama years, it was harder and harder for Congress to pass basic legislation um, with political leaders themselves you know, increasingly viewing politics and policy making as a as a zero sum, winner take all context. Um, that's something that you see in other divided societies. That 
uh, may also often see armed violence. Um, that's an example. Then, of course, you saw somewhat similar dynamics uh, at play amongst the public writ large. I mean, there has been um, academic research going back a few years now on uh, what's called effective polarization, the, the idea that you you dislike your political opponent just because they're your opponent, or you're more focused on, on beating your political opponent than, say, governing or, or reaching some policy objective. Um, for, for years now, we have seen the political divide in the U.S. increasingly function as an aspect of people's identity. One example is the survey data that suggests, you know, Republicans and Democrats increasingly would not want one of their children to marry someone from the other party. Um, and, and that's something we've seen in other societies uh, where, where you begin to see these political conflicts bleeding together with pre-existing uh, racial and ethnic fault lines and, and geographical differences, then everything gets harder to resolve. Uh, and, and so I would argue for, for years now, these trends in the U.S. have been calcifying in a way that allowed someone like Donald Trump to, to even be nominated as the Republican nominee for president, much less elected. So, so the roots of this go back a ways, and, and my interest in trying to do something about this um, goes back quite a few years. Yeah, and some of what you just mentioned, I mean, like you said, with conflict nerds, I know things that we often look for is indicators of othering, of even dehumanizing. And I think that's part of some of that effective polarization you were talking about. But I was, again, I've been struggling to see if if I see that happening in the, to what extent I see that happening in the U.S. compared to other places that I've worked. And I wonder what, what you think about that. Like, do you think that that othering aspect, that element of actually seeing others as different than you or more than different than you, actually less than you, less worthy than you, um, perhaps uh, without any kind of morals. Like, do, do you see that othering dynamic start to happen? Because that's that's usually what I look for and when I start getting a bit worried. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been happening. Uh, you know, there was a, a working paper published by Liliana Mason and Nathan Calome, Calome uh, two political scientists, um, looking at um, propensity toward partisan inflected violence. So they surveyed a bunch of Americans with questions like, how would you feel if, you know, the, the, the president of, of an, you know, or, or a senior politician in an opposing political party happened to die of cancer? Would you, would you feel like partisan schadenfreude? And, you know, significant portions of partisans on both sides say yes. And you even see minorities who, this is going back a few years now, were reporting that in some cases, uh, violence to further political ends against their political opponents would be justified. You only find survey results of that nature if you've already had that process of othering underway for some time. Um, in the project uh, I'm just wrapping up, uh, we have personnel monitoring the deepest, darkest corners of the Internet. And the, the widespread use of dehumanizing language 
um, particularly on the right, targeting um, persons of color, targeting their political opponents is is just is just in evidence all over the place. Um, so so there's 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 plenty of reasons to believe that in the United States today, that that process of othering has has really already happened, at, at least for those who are politically active on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. And I think what you said about being politically active is so interesting, for sure. I think we sometimes assume that it's, um, I don't know, make assumptions about certain demographics who are not paying attention or who are, quote unquote, ignorant, who are for- formating a lot of these more othering views. And yet, yeah, we just know from research as well as anecdotally that, in fact, it's often those who are actually like following things very closely and very active, um, even if it's not necessarily um, always reliable information, but people who at least think that they are very informed all the time. Um, So you just referenced that some people on your project are doing some of the media monitoring. Tell me more about what you actually did in this project, like what Carter Center, you know, usually is focused on democracy and peace building overseas, made this decision to focus on the U.S., I guess, within this last year or so. Um, what did what did this project look like? What were you trying to do and what actually happened? So there were two Carter Center departments involved in the work. Uh, the Carter Center's democracy program is famous for monitoring elections around the world. They have a huge uh, depth of expertise in the mechanics of what makes a good election. Uh, They were involved uh, for the first time ever, really, in a systematic way in in looking at the U.S. electoral process. And then uh, I um, was asked to design and manage a a conflict resolution-focused project. So um, uh, on the election side, uh, summarizing very quickly, Uh, my colleagues did a lot to try to put out good information about how U.S. elections are supposed to work uh, to counter the disinformation that was, you know, has been flooding our our politics and our national conversation. Um, They were also involved more directly in certain activities in the state of Georgia, the U.S. state of Georgia, where the Carter Center is based. Um, For example, they um, observed and one of the audits of the election result uh, it, uh, results in Georgia, which were um, contested, although without real real merit. Um, uh, so they did a number of sort of public-facing briefing papers, interviews, informational um, uh, activities to try to get better information out there and into the hands of of average citizens. Um, uh, on on the conflict side. We were interested in uh, in trying to uh, identify particular communities that might be at greater risk of election-related unrest. And then if we could identify those places, we wanted to figure out uh, if we could quickly help some of these communities be more resilient against these forms of political violence. So um, we uh, worked with a, a partner organization out of Princeton University and a, a data analyst um, and, and others to um, crunch numbers from publicly available data sources 
that that we selected because we thought they were indicative of the propensity for violence. Uh, we looked at things like county by county election results from 2016. Uh, we cross-referenced that with uh, racial and ethnic diversity of a given county, um, data on violence, police shootings, frequency of public protests, uh, things like that, to to give us some sense of how politically mobilized, how mobilized have people been county by county in the U.S.? How much are people out on the streets in general in, in 2020? And then what are those additional risk factors that might make a given place at higher risk of unrest around the election? So we, we sort of tilted the analysis deliberately to look at state capitals because we anticipated you'd see protests in state capitals around the count and the certification processes. We also uh, designed the model to look for uh, smaller cities that are in close proximity to rural areas that tend to swing more conservative. Portland, Oregon uh, in the U.S. Northwest is the canary in the coal mine for this phenomenon where you have a, a small, pretty liberal city surrounded by uh, rural areas that are a lot more conservative. And the geography is such that it's very easy for the, the partisan opponents, liberals and conservatives, to intermix physically, to get into fights and have counter-protests. And that that physical proximity just increases, uh, in a case like that, the chance for violence. So so we, in a very um, rushed and you know, admittedly very imperfect manner, we analyzed these data sets and we came up with a list of like 27 counties that we thought might be at somewhat elevated risk. And then we, we shared that data selectively um, with you know, uh, partners that had more reach than us, you know, national dialogue organizations or from, from you know, national dialogue type organizations to um, you know, the ACLU and the ADL. And then we chose a few of those places to see if we could engage directly. Um, Southwest Pennsylvania, around Pittsburgh, Central North Carolina, Atlanta, and parts of Georgia. And in those places, we very quickly tried to form relationships and identify um, local, credible community leaders. Uh, and to the extent that we found folks like that, we tried to share our analysis, we tried to empower them with uh, the trends we were seeing and, and explain why we were concerned and, and get a second opinion and see if they you know, shared some of these concerns. And then um, we we tried to ensure that these community stakeholders were in touch with one another. Um, we equipped them with tailored anti-violence messaging. We tried to get them pushing out some of these messages proactively, uh, you know, in the in the weeks before the election. And then we equipped them with specific things they could say in the event of you know challenges during the ballot counting, for example. Uh, and the hope also was that these groups could serve as a kind of rapid response mechanism if there was uh, intimidation, uh, you know, violence preventing people from getting to the polls, that you had a cadre of respected community voices who could weigh in on that quickly, uh, hopefully in a, in a public and de-escalatory fashion. Um, and I, so that's what I we did. You, who, were, who were some of the community leaders? Was it, um, you know... Policymakers, church leaders, uh, business leaders. What what kinds of people were you talking to? Uh, a little of of all of those. Um, we were probably most successful engaging faith leaders uh, from different religious traditions, 
but we also had, you know, people who work for community service nonprofits, uh, local activists, in some cases, local government personnel, you know, particularly people who had a kind of community relations uh, mandate for, you know, a given city government. Um, and and I, I want to emphasize uh, from our end, this process was really rushed. So in an ideal world, we would have had a lot more time to do more of a careful stakeholder mapping and um, identify that sort of the best people you'd want in those conversations and convince people, find people, and then convince them to come into these into this process. And we we really didn't have time for that. Um, and one of the, the consequences of that was it was difficult to engage uh, more conservative-minded folks. I think that could have been done with more time, but that requires real intentional, careful outreach um, to, to, to work across our, you know, partisan chasm. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't get to that in the time we had. And the kinds of messages that you were, or the messaging that you were trying to work with community leaders, like, what did that look like? Was that like ads? Or wh what is that when you say that? Well, in our first iteration, it was like a couple pages of talking points. Uh, the talking points themselves were a mix of facts about the electoral process, um, some of which were produced by our colleagues who, you know, work on elections. Uh, but, but you know, as well as um, survey-tested messaging that had been demonstrated to bolster confidence. Uh, you know, there's a nonprofit called More in Common that's done a lot of work around this. Um, so, for example. I think it was more in common that found that if you tell people that the average election worker in the United States has worked in seven previous elections, and I'm um, quoting from memory here, so I might be slightly off, but, you know, and has, you know, experience working um, in elections where Republicans and Democrats have both been elected, that was one of those messages that had been demonstrated to make people feel better about the process, particularly conservatives. Um, so a lot of it was sort of process and confidence building in the run-up to the election. And then we had some specific messaging designed to try to instill patience because we knew that the vote count would not come quickly in certain key states. Um, and then we had some sort of reserve messaging to be used in the event of violence. And this is, is delicate because you, you don't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. When everyone's already anxious, you don't want to say up front the sky is falling because you 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 may push people into a more heightened posture that you know indirectly contributes to the violence you're trying to avoid. So we we tr we tried to be careful not to simply say don't do violence, um, at, at least in the run up to the presidential election. But we also wanted to have some specific messaging ready about violence, depending on how things went. Yeah, and I think you're totally right. Like finding that balance between trying to be prepared but not alarmist and trying to have a narrative that is not creating a self-fulfilling prophecy but is also realistic and accurate. Um, so I, I think you all were, were walking a fine line there. I know, like you said, it was probably even more tough with it being so rushed. But what... What did you find? Like, did this work in the places that you were trying to do this? Was Did it work? Good question. 
and and it's hard to give a definitive answer um, because, in part, because we were we were working on such a short time frame, we we didn't have the time to set up uh, a real comprehensive um, evaluation system. Uh, I will say that um, we got positive feedback from the people we worked with. A lot of the community stakeholders who, you know, we, we had no prior relationship with, I had no prior relationship with before this work. They were really appreciative. There was certainly a sense that it was helpful to pe- for people to feel like they could do something and, you know, it, it empowering to give people things they could say and, you know, text message chains to be on if there was a problem. So that was certainly appreciated. The other thing I would emphasize is we were not the only actor doing this. Um, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace has a short paper up on their website where one of their researchers pulled together sort of a list of all kinds of different civil society and faith leader and private sector initiatives prior to the presidential election, all pushing out a fairly similar set of messages, which is we're going to have an election. We're going to follow the rules and we're going to count the votes and that's how we're going to do this. So um, it's really important to emphasize there, there were a lot of other voices admittedly at the last minute, but weighing in on the same theme. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think it is fair to say that th- there was some positive collective impact from all of these efforts. In the aftermath of the presidential election, in the immediate aftermath, things were not as bad as we feared they might be. And I think it is reasonable to consider that all of that work that was done had some positive impact. How you really suss that out and, and, and prove impact and within that, you know, the impact of my project, it, it is harder to say. Um, uh, but, you know, one, one thing we were looking for after the presidential election, which didn't happen until more recently, was whether or not President Trump would explicitly incite his supporters to violence. He didn't do that after the presidential election. Mm-hmm. And we discussed at the time with our partners and Carter and our colleagues that the fact that he didn't, he had not crossed that line was good and it helped. And then of course, last week he did and we saw the result. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, did you, having worked in this, working on this through and after the election, what was your response to that? Did you expect something like that? Were you kind of preparing for something like that? Or um, did it come as a surprise to you as well? What What was your response that day? The only thing that was surprising was the ineptitude of the response of of security and law enforcement. It was surprising that it was that easy for a violent mob to get inside the U.S. Capitol building. That was surprising and deeply disturbing. None of the rest of it was surprising. We were involved, and this point's been widely made in the media since, uh, in monitoring Parler and, mm-hmm. and, and you know Facebook and other platforms where people were openly talking about uh, a protest on the sixth designed to stop the steal and you know storm the Capitol. I mean, so it, I was involved in conversations with I was I was involved in a group of people, some of whom 
just in the days before the protest were, were talking, at least indirectly, to the U.S. Capitol Police, the D.C. Police, sharing some of the things we were seeing. Uh, and, and again, I'm hearing this indirectly, but the response from law enforcement as of, you know, the 4th or 5th of January was, we've got this. We're aware. We've got this under control. So whatever happened, the whole, the, you know, astounding confluence of events that, that led us to the security breach, that's a whole separate question. Sure. But everything else was entirely foreseeable, not just the demonstration itself, but the fact that you would see thousands of Americans who would be willing to travel to Washington on the erroneous belief that an election had been stolen, that uh, people meeting in Congress from members of Congress to the vice president of the United States were complicit in some sort of grand conspiracy theory and that therefore violence targeting them could be justified. All of that unfortunately, was entirely predictable. I mean, there's experience from conflicts around the world that I think have made clear the relationship between hate speech, dehumanization, and violence. I mean, there's there's no better example of this than the Rwandan genocide, right? Um, where real radio, pro-government radio broadcasts in the lead up to the violence uh, were so inciting. Um, yeah, absolutely and, extreme, yes. And, and in the United States, we have seen years and years, decades of dangerous rhetoric targeting political opponents and, and um, non-white Americans. Uh, the, the tenor of that rhetoric and the volume of it has increased in the last few years, thanks, you know, in part to social media. But, but the, the basic... Um, discourse wherein political opponents, particularly you know, Democrats being targeted by the right-wing media are painted as un-American or traitors or whatever, I mean, that goes back decades. So the idea that, therefore, eventually, you will have some significant minority of Americans who've internalized that and believe that you know, violence is justified in this way, that is not even slightly surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it does, it is frustrating that it was difficult for people like myself and, and many others, frankly, to get people to pay attention to, to the depth of these threats when when some of us were trying to make this case years and years ago because it it's it's obvious yeah i guess that's one thing i was curious about if you think that the has the threat itself actually changed or increased significantly in this recent time or did as you say what many are interpreting as essentially a security fail just make it visible um i think you could have had all the same this exact same group of people on the National Mall that day, you could have potentially had the same speech by Trump, but not have had a breach of the Capitol like we saw. Um, and yet that has kind of pulled away the veil and maybe made real some of this reality in the U.S. that you, myself included, was uh, took seriously, but maybe wasn't 
focusing on as as much or taking it as seriously as maybe I should have. So I was wondering what you thought about that. Has something actually changed or did the the idiosyncrasies of this particular episode just make it clear? I agree that um, the dramatic fashion in which this played out, the fact that they were able to get inside the Capitol and that, you know, five people tragically lost their lives. I, I do think that has been a wake-up call for some. Um, but but more fundamentally, I think I think the, the the confluence of events around the presidential election, um, President Trump and his party's uh, efforts going back months to delegitimize any election result that didn't see him win. Uh, and just accelerating factor. I mean, there was months of rhetoric from the president and his allies suggesting that they couldn't lose, that if they did lose, there had to be fraud. So so you had uh, a significant base of the president's supporters primed before the election to believe that narrative. Then, of course, President Trump lost, uh, and he and his you know closest supporters then engaged in a further campaign of disinformation to discredit his loss, raise doubts about his loss, discredit really the, the edifice of American electoral democracy, which landed on a, on a base of supporters that were already primed to receive that narrative. So if, if, you, if you fast forward to January 6th, you have millions of Americans who, who deeply believe that an election has been stolen, that President Trump should be walking into a second term. And it's not hard to imagine then, if you truly believe that, why violence feels justified. Um, so President Trump and, and the rhetoric around the election um, amplified some of these underlying really dangerous trends that we've been seeing for a long time. Um, you know, if Donald Trump were a different person, like if he'd if he had not been undermining the integrity of this process and if he just accepted defeat, then I think we wouldn't be seeing this. But the fact that he did um, means we are in a different place now. Yeah, and I think what you said is right. And I think we've both seen this in other places that we've worked where if people are convinced that they're fighting for a just cause, they can be motivated, convinced, inspired to go to very extreme lengths that they wouldn't under under other circumstances. And, and I think you saw a lot of that happening on January 6th. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. So what, what do you think happens now? Was this, was the Capitol riot potentially um, more demonstrations coming this week? Do you think this is kind of the low point that now there will be a pivot and a kind of a growing back and healing from, or do you see this as the just like the start of a descent into something perhaps more prolonged and potentially worse? Both. Uh, I, uh, I have heard indications anecdotally um, that not just from what's in the media, but from conversations that 
there's a, a chunk of Americans who we would call center right politically that were really shocked and disturbed by what they saw. And for them, uh, this, this may have prompted some real reassessment of, of some of their policy positions, where they put their money. We've seen, you know, for example, really interesting actions by the private sector just in the last few days. I mean, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is threatening, you know, not to donate to any candidate that is supporting insurrection, right? So, um, so, so I think there may be a class of quote-unquote establishment conservatives, particularly people with money in the United States, who of course really don't want this. You know, mobs storming the Capitol is definitely not good for business. And that's going to make some of them take this more seriously. And that may have a positive effect in the medium to long term. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's another chunk of, of Americans further to the right for whom this is going to be their Alamo, their their martyrdom moment. They're going. They're, I mean, there's indications this is already happening. They're going to form a narrative um, that suggests that you know this was their big attempt to right what they perceive as a great injustice, and they were thwarted in this case, but they're not giving up. Uh, and so it, it's it seems very likely to me that we will see um, additional violence perhaps in different forms going forward from elements of that um, radicalized minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I know we've been talking a bit about trends that we've seen in other places that indicate these kinds of divisions, these threats of violence, what have you. What are maybe some of the more best practices you've seen in other places that might apply now to the U.S. for what we can do at this point to diffuse some of these tensions, to prevent further violence. What, in your opinion, might work at a moment like this? Well, on the conflict side, you need two broad sets of interventions. First, there needs to be a significant investment in building local conflict resilience structures essentially, you know, doing what we started to do in this very rushed fashion on this Carter Center project, but in a much more systematic way, ideally around the United States. You know, in in the U.S. state of California, you prepare for wildfires in Louisiana, you prepare for flooding. Every county in the U.S. ought to have not only a, a conflict and violence response plan, but a, a community committee of of people uh, across partisan lines that hopefully are respected by their peers and that can, are ready to try to push back against violence. Um, you, you need that infrastructure essentially everywhere, and we don't have it. Uh, we, you know, we have infrastructure to turn out the vote. We have, you know, in some communities, very vibrant interfaith networks. It's not that we have no social capital or active civil society, but we do not, we're not set up as a society to mobilize uh, at the local level to try to prevent and counteract partisan and identity-based violence. 
and and you can do that. There are definitely ways to build that infrastructure. It takes time, and it's not particularly glamorous, but it's it's very doable. The other big piece of this is you need interventions directly focused on de-radicalization because given that we now have millions of Americans who I think it's fair to say are living in an alternate reality where you know Donald Trump should have another term and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a community that is not, it, it, it's going to be hard to reach via this kind of, um, you know, grassroots engagement and, and more traditional media outreach. So you need a separate set of interventions uh, designed to reach that target group. Um, and in part, I'm sure uh, there's a big social media component to that. Uh, you know, I, I know more in common than I mentioned a moment ago, they have a project where they were they were developing social media content designed to game the algorithms, to seed itself in the feeds of, of, of far-right viewers. You know, if you're someone whose YouTube feed is, is full of, you know, militia content, they're, they're crafting videos that will get sucked into those algorithms, but then once you watch the video, it might direct you to mental health resources or kind of you know, off-ramping to try mm -hmm. to give people who are already in this world some way out, expose them to different content. So and that's just an example. And honestly, that, that kind of media engagement is not, is not my strongest suit, but clearly there's a huge need for that uh, kind of work. Of course, you know, the US invested millions and millions of dollars in what we called, uh, what the State Department called, you know, countering violent extremism or preventing violent extremism. Yeah. Um, you, we, I, 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 I I hate to say it, but I mean, we have millions of Americans um, who have really internalized a, a extreme and, you know, potentially violent ideology. So you, you need to build whole, like specifically uh, constructed, you know, community infrastructure to, to give those people other places to go, to pull them out of that world. And, and that's where, you know, some, some of the existing work we've seen of you know, de-radicalization from white supremacy, or for that matter, from, you know, Al-Qaeda. I'm sure some of that, you know, intellectually and programmatically is relevant, but you need that investment on a huge scale. Absolutely. I, that's been one of the things I've been reflecting on lately, just based on my other work in, in the violent extremism and preventing violent extremism kind of area. And right, to actually, you know, if not completely change someone's beliefs, but just to pull them away from potentially violent behavior even, and, and that's a whole debate in itself. But that whole sense of like de-radicalizing, it tends to be so hyper-individualized with trying to work with different you know, people on a very one-to-one -one level. And as you said, just the scale that it would need to happen at, at the in the US and this much more like collective kind of approach, uh, is going to challenge a lot of the theories in that field that have tended to be become increasingly individualized and i think rightly necessarily so but trying to map that onto what we're seeing now is a different kind of challenge just because it's such a different collective level and um and is so caught up as you mentioned at the very beginning with whole communities and everyone's whole social network, not just what they're viewing by themselves on YouTube, but when you feel the people around you and the relationships around you are 
structured largely around a certain narrative or reality, it gets very hard to to pull people away from that. I wanted to ask a bit more at the first element that you mentioned, though, kind of building up more community resilience. And you said there are ways to do that. Can you just say a bit more about what would need to happen to have more of a community readiness, I guess, to prepare for some of these things, to build more community re- resilience? Like, is it is it a matter of funding? Is it a matter of political will? Because um, I think there's lots of people who would want to do this, but how how does something like that start? Well, funding is a part of it. And, and more generally, I would argue the U.S., um, whether one looks at government, the private sector, academia, philanthropy, nonprofits, we're not well set up for this. We do not have institutions in American life currently focused on these things, which is, you know, half the reason we're in this mess. Um, so, yes, you need resources. Uh, you need, uh, you know, more organizations like the Carter Center or more people like us who who have some of, of the skills and awareness that you would need to focus specifically on the conflict mitigation, violence prevention, cross-partisan engagement piece. Um, and you would, and you need to equip people with the skills to to do so with a deliberate theory of change. So it's it's not enough simply to uh, you know put up a sign and invite liberals and conservatives to dialogue, because the, the in my experience, particularly on the right, the people who might show up for such a conversation are probably not the people you most need to be there. Mm-hmm. You need a theory of change that uh, allows you to bring to the table people who have influence outside of the room you're talking in, right? The, the whole the whole point is to mobilize um, trendsetters. You know, I mm-hmm. I would you know note the work of uh, Christina Bicieri at the University of Pennsylvania, who's done a lot of work on social norm formation and change. She's looked at female genital cutting in Africa um, and and cites examples of where you convinced like all, you know, the, all the men or most of the men in Village X to get together and say, as a group, we think this is bad, we should stop doing it. When you can, when you can get influential people to come out in mass, you can change norms or set new norms or set better norms. So there, there is a way to apply that locally in the United States. We can do the work to strengthen norms of nonviolence in our in our politics and hopefully underlying norms of respect for the truth. But you've got to invest the time to find and convince to come to the table people, particularly on the right of the aisle, who, when they speak, others will listen. And, and and that level of, in, of investment and, and you know some painstaking community grounded work is is a lot of what's been missing. It takes time. You you would need yeah. a in my mind a, sort of a big training of trainer model and some money where you recruit people who live in these communities and and give them the skills to go out and do this work with some kind of you know platform. Um, but that's that's how you would do it. And and I want to be careful to note that even that's not a, a perfect solution by any means, because it even then it's going to be hard to engage, I think, the the um, you know, really 
conservative fringe through those structures, but you still need them, right? It's still helpful. Like the more you can build those resilience networks that get adjacent to the real radicals, the more you have a community infrastructure that is positioned to find those people, to spot, you know, the teenage kid or the, you know, retiree who's going down a rabbit hole watching violent YouTube videos, right? Um, and then when you, if, if and when you do have a problem in a given community, you have a community infrastructure ready to respond to it. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it can be done, but it takes time and, and resources. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to ask, and we'll wrap things up in a minute, but are, are there, is there anything on which your own thinking has changed since you started doing this work, something that you believed or assumed at the beginning that now you think differently on? Well, over the last couple of years, I mean, not just in the course of this project, but as I've read more and talked to more people, uh, I've, I've certainly come to elevate the role of race and the, the you know, unresolved horrors of American history, the, the failure of Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War and, and the, the unfinished business of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I've come to see that as as maybe the single biggest sort of deep structural factor underlying the mess we're in. We, I would argue, um, we never, we, we didn't build enough of a consensus around the idea that all Americans are full and equal citizens in our democracy, regardless of the color of their skin. We got closer to that. Uh, you know, thanks to the successes of the civil rights movement. Um, but uh, it's clear to me that events of the last few years demonstrate that there were uh, and remain a big chunk of Americans who I think were never fully on board with that. And then over the last 30 or 40 years, as America has become quantifiably less white, um, you know, more people of color in this country, um, thanks to immigration, that same group of Americans who was never fully comfortable with the idea that non-white people were full and equal Americans has just gotten more and more unsettled. And I think uh, underlying the roots of a lot of our current malaise are, are, is, is that echoing up through our body politic. Um, that's a big one. And, I, and I, didn't, I didn't fully appreciate that when I started digging into this. Yeah, I've heard you say before that where you see some of the maybe deeply rooted tensions right now are tensions in trying to build or embrace a multi-ethnic democracy in particular, that that um, that current move in the United States is partly what's unsettling uh, many and causing some of these these deep divisions and rifts and uh, yeah, just just challenges. Um, well, what's next for you, Nathan? Uh, good question. I mean, the, the Carter Center is is having some internal considerations about uh, how they want to carry this work forward. Uh, you know, regardless for myself, um, these are issues that are really important to me. I can't, uh, for better or worse, I can't stop thinking about these things. So I, I certainly want to find ways to keep contributing and doing my part to help us all get through this. Was there anything else that we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? I just, I want to end on a, 
on a cautiously optimistic note, uh, which is to say that, you know, we all have agency here uh, through what we say, how we engage with our in-groups. Uh, we all have the capacity to push back against dehumanizing language, um, to, to be vocal about standing up for the fundamentals of, of truth, democracy, and nonviolence. And I think the more Americans embrace that and, and recognize that simply standing up for the truth or, you know, electoral integrity is not politics that's it's that is a separate domain from talking about what candidate you support or where you stand on marginal tax rates there are these underlying values that everybody needs to support though we do not and and all of us i think can play a positive role in in promoting those values and i think i hope in the long term that that can help well that indeed is a good place to end and i'll just Ask the final question, are there any books that you would recommend either on these topics or anything else that has inspired or entertained you? Uh, this is a little tricky because I've read like maybe 10% of the book. Uh, but for Christmas, I got Robert Putnam's new book. And there's a co-author as well, whose name I forget, meaning no disrespect to that person. But it's called The Upswing. And it's an analysis of the Gilded Age in, in the United States, the, the late 19th and early 20th century, and, and, an, and, and a, a sort of a meditation on how the U.S. got out of that period of huge iniquity and racial unrest and, and built a, a, a highly imperfect, but I think um, much better functioning democracy and social welfare state. And I've long uh, been drawn to, to the parallels between, you know, America circa 1900 and America today. And I've been looking for someone to lay out for me how we got out of that mess uh, to see if there are lessons learned for how we can get out of this mess. And according to Robert Putnam, there are. I just need to read the rest of his book. It's called The Upswing. I'm recommending it, having only read a little bit of it. Awesome. I just read an excerpt from that um, a couple weeks ago that was in one of the newspapers. And uh, and I the book the full book is in my queue as well. So I'm glad to hear you recommend it. Anyway, Nathan, this has been such a pleasure. I could keep chatting with you about all kinds of things for much longer, but really appreciate your time and your insights today. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Julie. Thank you once again to Nathan Stock. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. This is one of two episodes kicking off season two, so be sure to listen to my other conversation this week on dangerous speech with Dr. Jeffrey Howard of University College London. As always, if you like this podcast, please take just a couple seconds to subscribe, give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.